to greet you in Jesus' name. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, a blessed Thanksgiving. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and we are aware of that, um, but we will not begin celebrating Advent formally until next week in terms of lighting the candle. Um, Kate is not with us this morning, and Kendra, who helped prepare the series, is not with us, and I said, let's just wait till you're here. You put a lot of time into this, and so we'll begin with the lighting of the first Advent candle next week. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. I want to make two comments as I begin this morning. One is that if you have the booklet with you, um, this is titled Powered by the Spirit. And uh, one of the things about, again, preparing a curriculum before you teach or before you preach is that, particularly when you're preaching, you never know exactly which direction God's going to lead you. And I could not get away from one of the passages uh, for today, the 1 Corinthians 1 passage. And Paul's emphasis on the power of the Messiah. This is not separate from the power of the Spirit, for indeed the Holy Spirit is the, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about two separate kinds of power here. We're talking about the power of the Messiah and the power of the Holy Spirit as one. Um, but it does take a little bit different direction this morning because of this passage. Number two, I'm keenly aware when I come into the pulpit and when I leave that I always have the potential of offending just about everyone in the congregation. And I have to say, as an introvert and a people pleaser, that's not a very comfortable place to be. So I want you to know that when I do preach, I preach um, because I sense that God has asked me to share what I share, and I just want to add that this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. Yes, kind of. 9 to 4 in the Pew Bible, if you're following in the Pew Bible um, this morning. Page 9 to 4. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. Paul says this, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And one of the things we're going to hear over and over again this morning is the cross of Christ's power. That the power of Christ, had, the power of the cross had power, not because it was a wooden instrument, because it was on that cross that Christ overcame the powers. It was on that, Christ, on that cross that Christ, through his resurrection, overcame death and hell and destruction. That's what gives the cross power. And so that's what he's meaning. Not that there's power in the wood, but there's power in what happened on that tree that, and after that tree when Christ was in the tomb. That it was the Spirit of God, and Paul says this, it was the Spirit of God that empowered and rose Jesus Christ from the dead. But you're going to hear him talk about the cross of Christ. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And he holds together power and wisdom very closely 
uh, in this passage. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That is, if you could weigh on a scale the, the strength and weakness of God, even God's weakness is greater than human strength. Even God's foolishness is greater than human wisdom. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. What we know about the Corinthian church is that it was not a, a middle-class, upper-class church. It was not a highly educated church. It was, it was ordinary, everyday people. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble by birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify or to do away with the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is a continuing theme of Paul, that if we have anything to boast about, it's only about the fact that we can boast in the Lord, and in his righteousness, his faithfulness, and not our own. This morning's message is a study of Paul's understanding of the Messiah's power. And we're going to look at three or four passages this morning as we do this little Bible study, trying to understand, and, and by God's Spirit, understanding what Paul meant by, by the Messiah's power, as compared to the other kinds of power that are found elsewhere in the world. If anybody does, Paul knows about the other kinds of power. He was part of the religious powerhouse of the Pharisees. He knew intellectual power. He was exceptionally trained by Gamaliel. He knew political power. He encountered it in city after city after city as riots rose up in his stead. He knew the demonic powers that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that found their way into individuals and into the principalities and into the social structures of the world. Paul recognized and had experienced the different types of power that exist in this world. But having been smitten by the love of the Messiah on the road to Damascus, Paul's understanding of power was turned upside down. And we're going to see that this morning. Paul's understanding of power gets flipped on its head. And what we will see is that his new understanding of power is fundamentally different than what he had before he met the Messiah. The Messiah changed everything about Paul's view of power. How he views religious power, how he views political power, intellectual power, and demonic power. Not only is the Messiah's power different, says Paul, it is ultimately greater than all of these powers put together. Amen? Not only is the Messiah's power uniquely different, it is greater than all of these powers put together. I'd like you to think about a question for a moment with me. Right where you are this morning, sitting where you are, whatever you've been thinking about as I've been preaching. If you had the power to do anything in the world, what would it be? If you, in the next five minutes, could accomplish anything you wanted to accomplish in the world, in your life, in our community, in your family, what, what would it be? What would you do if you could? And then what kind of power would you need to do that? What kind of power would you need to pull off that task? What kind of power do you need to do that thing that you most want to do? Now, I want you to consider this with me. If Christ has made his home in you, you have the power through the Spirit of Christ 
to do that which the Messiah wants you to do and that which you need to do? Now, that's a different question. I didn't ask you, what does the Messiah want you to do? I asked you, what do you want to do? And maybe they're the very same thing. I trust they probably are. But if they are, then we have the power within us. Remember, Christ lives in us in the same way that God's Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God, dwelt in the temple. That's an amazing thing, folks. I hope that by now you're catching on to that theme and and kind of living it out throughout the week, thinking about that. And no matter what moment of your day, that, that Christ lives in you with the same glory and the same power that Christ, that God dwelt in the temple. Paul's abundantly clear about that. That Christ is in us our hope of glory in the same way that God dwelt in the temple. Paul says we only need the power of the Messiah and that we can access that at any time. That we can access that not once a year in the Holy of Holies, but we have access to that power now. To that power in this very moment. And it's for that reason that Paul says in, first, in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength or the power. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the power. As you think about this past week, as you think about the coming week, there may be things in your day or your week that you're saying, I just can't do. I don't know how in the world I'm going to do this. Paul says, you can do it. If it's... If, 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 it's, if it's of the Messiah, his power is available to you. His power, his power is present within you to do this. You can pull this off, not because of who you are, and we're going to get to this in a moment, but because of Christ in you in the midst of your weakness. To the other powers, besides the Messiah power, to the other powers, the political powers, the religious powers, the economic powers, the intellectual powers, the power of the Messiah, says Paul, seems weak. Weak and powerless and unimpressive. The other powers look at the Messiah power and say, what's up? There's not much here. So unimpressive, so invisible, so irrelevant. But Paul says it's not about your IQ or your GPA or your SAT score or your MCAT score. It's not about your 401k or the car you drive or the house you live in. It's not about tanks and missiles and AK-47s and destroyer ships. It's not about doing all the right things and keeping the Ten Commandments or being just as good as you can be. It's not about being for the right political party and voting for the right candidates. It's not having the biggest and buffest or hottest body in school. If we are impressed by and looking to these kinds of powers, the Messiah power will appear weak and unimpressive and foolish. If we are looking to these powers, the Messiah's power will appear weak and foolish and unimpressive. So where are you looking this morning? Where are you looking to your power? Where are you looking for your power this morning? As you think about your life, as you think about this week, where are your eyes focused for the power that you need to do what is in front of you this week? When I teach my students in my course on race and ethnicity, I often draw on the board a large circle, which represents the dominant culture that someone lives in, the the core culture, the the culture with more power than the other subcultures around it. In our country, that has and remains white and European in ancestry. That's the big circle in our country. 
On the edge of that large circle, then I draw smaller circles. These represent minority cultures and minority groups, black Americans, Hispanic Latinos, Muslims, Jewish Americans, and others. So you have a big circle and little circles, and the little circles represent the minority groups or subcultures. And one of the things that I share with my students is that the big circle represents the dominant cultural story that we live in. We live in a story. We live in multiple stories. But we live in a dominant cultural narrative that is largely European and white. It's why when my students get into this course, they know nothing, almost nothing about the last 400 years of slavery and African-American history. Almost nothing. It's amazing to me. Why? Because the narrative in our secondary schools is largely written by European whites. And so those subculture stories aren't being told for the most part. For the most part, those of us in the big circle don't know much about the stories and the narratives on the edges of that big circle because we don't need to. We can get by in our lives with the power of the big circle. We don't need to worry about the little circles. It's why when we go overseas, we always find no matter what country you go to, they know more about America than we do about them. Because in this world, in this universe, in this, in this globe, we are still the dominant power. So we worry less about everybody else than they worry about us. Because they know if they don't behave well, well, their life might depend on it. Their survival might be tend depend on it. That's true of every minority group. Every minority circle, every little circle has to know their story, but also the big story. Because their survival might actually depend on knowing the big story well. African Americans during the Jim Crow era who did not pay attention to the big circle and the rules of the big circle, like Emmett Till, who was an African American teenager who came from Chicago down to Mississippi to visit some cousins, and perhaps, we don't know for sure, spoke to a white woman in a store, found himself on the bottom of a river. Others found themselves hanging from trees because they didn't pay attention to the rules of the big circle. They didn't pay attention to the rules of the power in the big circle. You see, the power of the big circle usually wins because it doesn't need to pay attention to the little circle. In fact, what happens often, the big circle often dehumanizes those in the little circles. It's what, it's, it's, what, it's what the church and Hitler were able to do in the 30s and 40s in Germany. They were able to dehumanize Jews and then run them through the gas chambers because they weren't really human beings. So in the big circle, we take our power and we often use it to dehumanize those on the outside. And yet the story of Christianity, folks, for the last 2,000 years is that the activity of the Holy Spirit is almost always in the little circles. Do you hear me? The activity and creative work of the Holy Spirit is almost always in the little circles. When revivals break out, they typically don't break out in the big circle. Because the big circle doesn't need a revival. Christendom under, under Constantine did not need a revival. But it needed a revival by the 15th and 16th centuries. And then it broke out in little places, like our Anabaptists who came before us. The movement of the Holy Spirit usually begins among those whom the big circle considers to be weak, to be worthless, to be foolish, to be underachievers and nobodies. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. You were nobody in the world's eyes, but it was among you that the church began. It was among you that the Holy Spirit came. And 
Brothers and sisters, need we be reminded that in this story of Advent and Christmas, the very story of our Lord and Messiah begins in a little circle. It's a little circle story. He was born in a stable, not in a palace, even though he was a king. And this is the point that Paul wants to make in today's lesson, that the followers of the Messiah must see themselves as people of the little circle, not the big circle. For our power is not that of the world. It's not economic, it's not political, it's not religious or any other thing. No, the big circle, to the big circle, our source of power in the cross appears foolish. Our source of power in the cross appears weak and powerless, unimpressive and worthless. But indeed, if we are Messiah followers, we are people of the little circle. And the moment that we forget that, and embrace the power of the big circle, economic power, political power, or religious power, we become assimilated into the big circle. The moment we embrace the power of the big circle, we become part of the big circle. I often put it this way, churches that, churches that embrace the culture disappear into the culture. Churches that embrace the big circle disappear into the big circle. What happens is that we lose our witness in the big circle. We get co-opted by the big circle. The big circle takes our story and it gives us their story. And it's no story, folks. It's no story. The one story is the Messiah story. And this is why I continue to be terribly concerned right now about the embrace of so much of the evangelical church of the political establishment. Because by embracing political parties and politicians, we are moving away from the story of the power of the Messiah to embrace the power of the big circle. And folks, we don't need it. Amen? We do not need the power of the big circle to do what God wants to be done. Maybe to do what we want to be done. But God is big enough to take care of the world. And we need not waste our time and energies on the big circle. We are sabotaging our witness for the Messiah and the true power of the Messiah anytime we embrace the big circle. We are in essence saying that the power and wisdom of the Messiah are not sufficient for me, are not sufficient for my family, are not sufficient for my country, are not sufficient for my children. I need to subsidize the Messiah's power by a little charge from the big circle. In the history of the church, both liberal and conservative, those who move into the big circle disappear into the big circle. The big circle inevitably swallows up Messiah followers. The embrace of evangelicals today, of many evangelicals, of the right-leaning political establishment and the effect it will have on the long-term future of the church is no different than the embrace of, uh, of, political, of the political establishment by mainline Christianity in the 18th and 19th centuries and 20th centuries. There was a time when most of legislators in Congress were, were Presbyterian. A majority of them were Presbyterian. The main line went this way, and we know what happened to the main line. They'll tell us what happened to themselves. They got lost in the big circle, folks. Who do we think we are to think we're not going to get lost in that big circle? Just as the mainline church in America lost its soul to the political left, so we are greatly at risk as an evangelical church and losing our soul to the political right. And this is what Paul was so worried about. 
as he spoke to the Corinthian church, this fledgling little church that he was planting, that if they left the little circle of the Messiah to embrace the dominant cultures of the day, who saw the cross as foolish and weak, there'd be no church in the future. If you and I leave the foolish and powerless little circle of the Messiah today to embrace the big circle of our culture, there will be no church for our children and grandchildren. The church was never meant to thrive, and it never has thrived in the big circle, ever. The church that has been an accepted and assimilated church is always a church that's a dying church. If we don't feel a little bit uncomfortable as Messiah followers, we have been swallowed by the big circle. If we do not feel a little uncomfortable, and maybe a lot uncomfortable like I do this morning, we've been swallowed by the big circle. The church was never meant to thrive there and never has. Always in the little circles, which are in so many ways weak and powerless and completely dependent on the spirit of the Messiah, that's where Christianity thrives. Jesus was clear, we can't embrace mammon and God. And he wasn't just talking about money. He was talking about anything of the big circle. You can't have it both ways. You can't embrace the big circle and embrace the little circle. We cannot live in the world and be of the world. We cannot live in the world and be of the same nature and quality of the world. We, we, history shows us, folks, this is not fake news. This is a scripture. We can't do both if we want a future. What is Paul saying this morning? That the cross of Christ has power in it because of our resurrected Lord. It was the death of resurrection of the cross on the cross of Christ, the cross by which the Spirit of God rose Jesus from the dead that overcame all of the other powers and showed them to be inferior and weak and irrelevant and trivial. That's what the cross does. The cross shows the other powers ultimately to be irrelevant and weak and trivial and unimpressive. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to that one king. Amen? The other powers won't matter. It was on that cross that the principalities and powers were defeated. Paul consistently holds that the wisdom of Christ and the power of Christ are to be together, connected to the cross and what happened on the cross through the power of God's Spirit. Both the wisdom of Christ and the power of Christ are seen as foolishness and weakness to the world that embraces a very different kind of power and a very different kind of wisdom. The difference between the world's sense of power and the Messiah follower sense of power, says Paul, is so startling that even the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. Even the weakness of God is greater than human strength. How can this be? Because the economies of God's kingdom and the world's kingdom are so different. The values are so different. The goals are so different. The definitions of wisdom and strength are so different. I just want you for a moment to just ask the Lord, where are your definitions of power coming from? Let's just pause for a moment and just let's take a little time of prayer this morning. And just say, Lord, where are my definitions of power coming from? Where are my values rooted in? The little circle or the big circle? The little circle that takes your words seriously or the big circle that, well, maybe.
Paul is trying to help these former pagans, these first-generation Messiah followers, to understand what it means to step out of the economy of the world and its powers and into the kingdom of God and its power. Because they are at risk. They are one generation. They are the first generation of followers of Jesus. Paul is trying to help them understand that they have stepped from a pagan world that defines power one way into a Messiah world that defines power completely, completely differently. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 21. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 21. I love this passage. Paul says, it looks to me like God has put we we apostles on display at the end of the procession. And he's not talking about like a beauty pageant. He says, it looks like we apostles have been put on display as those condemned to die in the arena. We've got nooses around their necks, he's saying. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ. And then he gets a little sarcastic, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. He's goading them a little bit, like, come on, where's your powers? Where are you looking? We are honored. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we, we, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. And then he says this, and this is my prayer of this morning. I love this verse this morning for this message. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. And I want to say that this morning as I share this message. I am writing this not to shame you. Hear me. I am writing this, I am preaching this not to shame you, but to warn you, dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, says Paul. For in Jesus Christ, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what their power is. It's, it's that question. What is their power? What is, they talk big, but what's their power? For the kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of talk. It's not talking. It's power. It's evidence on the ground. It's what happens. It's transformed lives, not talking. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? The natural place, says Paul, for an apostle like me is the end of the line, condemned to die, made a spectacle, fool, weak, dishonored, hungry, thirsty, brutally treated and homeless, the scum of the earth. This is what happens to Messiah followers, says Paul, because they are people of the little circle. This is why the way of the Messiah seems so weak to others who believe that true power is a matter of talk and big talk, arrogant talk. But true power, says Paul, is found at the end of the line. True power, says Paul, is found in the little circle where the life of the Messiah is mimicked. 
as Paul describes in Philippians 2, and I'm going to read it, you don't need to turn it, but it's a familiar passage to many of you. Philippians 2, he says, this is my model for the little circle. This is my model for power. In your relationships, one another have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Quite frankly, the little circle often ends in death. It ends certainly with our own death of self. But the truly sacrificial life historically has often ended in death. And so this is the model from which Paul is preaching as he draws the early church into the nature of the Messiah's power. This teaching is not theoretical or abstract for Paul, though. These aren't just good ideas he has. No, Paul has learned over the years that being an apostle occurs only when we embrace the kind of power that the Messiah has. And why is this the case? Because the Messiah's power is truly power. And when we connect with that power out of our weakness, then suddenly we discover a power we didn't know existed. It is only, brothers and sisters, when we are down and out and I, I didn't used to figure out, why is this the case? Why do I have to be down and out before I listen to God? But it is. It is only when we are down and out, suffering, in pain, desperate, afraid, and weak, that we have any chance of turning to the Messiah for power, because otherwise we will depend upon our own power, which frankly is no power at all. So Paul's saying. But we, we it, it's almost always true, that we don't turn to his power until we need his power. We don't step on the gas until we need to get somewhere. We just hang out where we are. This is why, again, I'm so concerned about what's happening in the church right now. I'm concerned that we've abandoned the Messiah's power and the transformation that only that power can bring, that only that power can bring to our lives and our family and our community and our country. But inevitably, when we do that, we are saying that the power of Christ manifested on the cross is simply not enough to do the transforming and miraculous work that is so much needed in our world, in our community, and in our lives. While Paul says we are to honor those leading government, he never made the mistake of looking to those powers for the answers. He never made the mistake of looking for the, to those powers to transform the world. He knew better despite the power he had as a Roman citizen, which he appealed to once, but it didn't serve him particularly well. And so that by Philippians 3, Paul can say that he has abandoned everything. <clears throat> he has abandoned all the powers. He has put them all on the junk pile, on a heap of rubbish, all the powers except the cross. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Whatever was gained to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. And he pours out his heart here. I want to know Christ. It's the only thing left for him. 
Everything else is gone. He's thrown it out. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why does he want to participate in Christ's sufferings? Because he knows that it's only in that place that he will call out to the power of Christ. He wants to participate in suffering because he knows it's from there that he will call Christ's name. This isn't just good talk for Paul. He says, just let me participate in your sufferings, Lord, because it's in that place that I will embrace your power. Paul says, I want to experience the power of the resurrected Christ, but I can't do it unless I also experience the cross of Christ. Not only is this understanding of power so countercultural in the world we live in, it's also countercultural to many of us today. I have to ask myself this question as I'm preparing this message, as I was preparing this message as I'm preaching. Where is my own source of power? Because we have become so assimilated into the world, accepting its values, its beliefs, its normative behaviors, its attitudes. We often go around pinning Christian labels on behaviors. But that doesn't change what's underneath. We want economic power, political power, intellectual power, physical power, military power, as much as more than anyone else as a church. And again, I'm afraid that the power of the cross also looks like foolishness to many of us. When our children choose these powers, I wonder sometimes if they just aren't doing more explicitly and more openly what they've seen us doing all along, that we've lived in denial of. That despite saying we have our allegiance and love for the Messiah, that they see through our deception and recognize that we're actually more invested in the world's powers. That they get it. And what we find so painful about their stepping out of the closet is that perhaps we realize they are being more consistent than we have been. And, that if, and, and, and if that recognition doesn't turn us back to the Messiah's power on the cross, I'm not sure what will. We could go on. There are so many passages First Corinthians, in First and Second Corinthians that address the same issue. That the human heart can only worship one power. The human heart can only serve one power. The human heart can only be transformed by one power. It's that weak and foolish power of the cross, that wonderful cross on which our Savior rose. I just want to conclude with this passage that I've been repeating to you repeatedly from Ephesians 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, and I want you to listen to how many times, and I told you just now three, power is mentioned in this passage. I want, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with what? Power. Through what? His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have what? Power. Together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his what? power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is the nature of the power of the Messiah? It's the power to allow the Messiah to dwell in our hearts and to transform us. Power that leaves no space for any other powers. 
power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and knows this love that surpasses knowledge. None of the other powers will ultimately transform us or give us the love of God. None of the other powers will, as Isaiah says, hold us by in his hand. Isaiah 40 says that God holds us close to his heart. None of the other powers will ever do that. They will use us for a while and then they'll throw us out. The transforming power of the Messiah that is at work in our congregation in these days can be easy for us to take credit for. We can talk about why are things happening that are happening. But in doing so, let us never forget that it is ultimately the power of the Messiah who is doing immeasurably more than we could think or imagine among us these days. And that any moment we choose any other power than that of the cross, which is so easy to do, we will shut down the movement of God's transforming power. And I believe that. We sit around and we pray for revival, and we pray for revival, and we pray for revival, but we go out the door we embrace the other powers. And I don't believe until we give up the other powers that revival happens. I don't believe we are transformed until we say the other powers have nothing for me. Because we can't serve both. Lord Jesus, thank you.